Hello and welcome to Wolf in Tune. I'm Wolf, Richard Wolf, and as the notorious B.I.G. said, if you don't know, now you know. I am delighted to tell you that our guest today is Dr. Glenn Fox. Glenn is a neuroscientist and director of the Performance Science Institute at USC. Usually they sort of channel their research into sports performance, but they also are spending time on musical performance. And Glenn is bristling with intellectual curiosity and knowledge and wisdom. And in this episode, we talk about his research into gratitude. That's one of his main fields of research, the biological effects of gratitude and the emotional and psychological effects, and his research into mindfulness and enthusiasm, his uh, conclusions on optimal decision-making, the science of emotions, and we talk about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. It's very big in people's lives because sometimes people tend to think that because they were born with a certain capacity or lack of capacity and they've had early experiences, they, they can't change. So we talk about how the brain is changeable ad infinitum and the importance of fun as it relates to performance. And, uh, and that's something I identify with, especially as it relates to stage fright or performance anxiety. And we also talk about the biological effects of stress, the value of nervous energy, and which relates to, of course, performance anxiety and other threat states. The locus of control, handling rejection, which musicians are always dealing with, and self-efficacy. So without further ado, let's tune in to Dr. And he gets annoyed because I call him, a, he's a PhD. Let's tune in to Glenn Fox. Okay, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I want to thank, he doesn't like me to call him Dr. Glenn Fox, but I'm going to call him because it sounds important. And you do have a PhD, right? Correct. So Dr. Glenn Fox is here as my guest. I'm thrilled to have you here. Pleasure to be here. And it's great to see you. Is actually one of the few people that I foisted my book on that actually read. At least he told me he read it. <laughs> so, um, and but he wants me to call him Glenn. So from now on, I'm going to call him Doctor Fox just to annoy him. No, I'm going to call him Glenn. And what'd you get your PhD in? Neuroscience. Yes, he's a neuroscientist, and you are also the head. Well, one of the directors, right, of the performance. Yeah, yeah, I run the USC Performance Science Institute at the Marshall School of Business. That's fantastic. Tell us what is the Performance Science Institute? What do you do? Well, our mission is to help people who want to train their mind. We can talk a lot about training the mind. I think that's going to be a lot of what our discussion is today. Yeah. But suffice it to say that so much of what we do revolves around our ability to frame challenges, to frame stress, to frame setbacks in a really proactive way. So much of where we can go in terms of setting our goals, in terms of getting good habits, in terms of just enjoying life and doing great work comes down to our mind and how we think about things and how we think about thinking and all those layers and everywhere in between. As it happens, we now have good science on how we can address this issue of having a skilled mind. We can debate that a bit, but 
it's a lot of unpacking to be sure, but we now know that things like gratitude, optimism, personal purpose, these things can be practiced and enhanced and we can treat them like a skill and work on them the same way that you might work on becoming more fit at the gym. We can all take time every day to work on training our minds to work for us a little bit better. Our mind is something the body does. It's not magic. It's here for us to be a tool. And sometimes it can really help us break down problems and analyze things very deeply, which is great. And sometimes it can stick on an idea and lead us to some really bad places too. Mm -hmm. The key is that it's meant to be a tool. It's something the brain does. And I think it's the most interesting thing in the world. I'm I'm driven in my life to try to understand how things work. I love working on cars. I love, um, you know, building things out of wood. I, I love understanding how the mind works. And I put all those things in the same bucket of my life's goal to understand how things work. Now, when you say the science of this stuff, are you talking about changes in the brain, like chemical or physical changes that happen in the brain when, for instance, you practice optimism? We yes. Uh, Although, to my knowledge, there aren't direct studies of optimism in the brain, to be clear. I have to say that as a scientist, to try to be as, as precise as possible. But we do know things like gratitude. There are a number of studies that show that practicing gratitude does show some differences in how the brain works from time A to time B. And it involves a set of brain regions that are more typically used for social evaluation for kind of how we think about whether or not something is good, you know, what we would call subjective evaluation, and also for how we bond with each other and how we think about the things that help us relieve stress. I believe my, my take on it, and there's going to be a lot of research on this, but my current working hypothesis for how gratitude works is that it is so, it's, it's a stress-relieving function, that Gratitude is our way of connecting with other people. It's our way of understanding when somebody has done something good to help us and recognizing and sharing in that vulnerable moment. It's not always entirely positive. Gratitude is not a synonym for happiness. It has to do with us saying, wow, that that really helped me out. That relieved a stress. That relieved a burden. That relieved me of something difficult or painful. And that feeling is is wonderful and it, it's part of the brain circuitry for its own ability to regulate pain and it's something that we can practice well boy you ran away with the gratitude thing pretty quickly i know <laughs> and you mentioned a lot of things that i want to circle back to like uh setbacks for example mm -hmm. but i mean uh, with gratitude this is one of the fields of your expertise that you're known for uh, having done research in the science of gratitude so Gratitude has physical, when people practice gratitude, and by the way, what's interesting to me is that I've had some recovering addicts in here, and they've all spoken about four pillars of treatment and, and recovery, and one of them is to practice gratitude. I think, in, in fact, that's like one of the first things mm -hmm. when they meditate, mm -hmm. what they do is they practice gratitude. So what have you found, have you found any kind of neuroscientific evidence of what happens in the brain when you practice gratitude, exactly, you know, physically or chemically. Yeah, 
we are still learning a lot about how practicing gratitude can change the brain itself. We know that it can. We know that every experience we have, how we think, how we shape our mind is fundamentally changing our brain. You can, your brain is very plastic. It's not unlimited plasticity, as we would say. There are there are limits to it, of course. Um, Does age matter or can it always be changed, your brain? I believe that it can always be changed. Okay. The degree to which it can be changed will be um, will be a little bit smaller as we get older. We know that certain things happen in the brain as a, res- as a result of age, but we do know that factors of our mind, factors of how we see things, actually does slow down a lot of these changes in the brain related to age. Uh, gratitude has been shown to, um, in a pit study of folks who are dealing with depression, this is a study done from the University of Indiana, it wasn't my research, but showed that people who practice gratitude, depressed patients or people who practice gratitude actually did see when they actually went in the brain scanner on day one versus day two, and they actually went in and did a little task where they received help from another person. They found that the people have been practicing gratitude for eight weeks. The activity in the the part of the brain in the medial frontal cortex that we found to be active in my own study, that same brain region became more active uh, for people who had been practicing gratitude for a very short period of time. So fascinating. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Now, is it going to make that part of the brain really big or something? We don't know. And it's not that. It's not exactly like a muscle in that regard. You know, sometimes practicing something can make more of the brain active or sometimes makes it less active. It just depends on the task. And, you know, the brain's very complicated as it happens. Uh, But suffice it to say that practicing things, practicing things like mindfulness, practicing things like music, of course, music drastically changes how the brain works. And musical training changes how the brain develops. It changes how you hear things. It changes... Uh, children's sensitivity to certain tones and pitches. Um, Can you elaborate on how music changes the brain? Yeah, this was, my friends um, did this research at the Brain and Creativity Institute. This is where I earned my PhD. And they had, um, they have been tracking a group of music students who are enrolled in a program that's similar to Gustavo Dudamel's El Sistema. And so here in Los Angeles, there's a very similar program for. So hold on a second. Hold okay, on. yeah, you there's a lot. Gustavo Dudamel. Yes, he's the conductor of the LA Philharmonic. Yeah, thank you. Yes, from Venezuela. Yes, where they have a program there for kids. It's it's very famous, right? To teach them music at a very young age, very intensively, right? Yes, yes. Thanks. And for- that's what you're referring to. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um. And yeah. So they they have these these students, and they've been. They're really adorable. You would see them in the lab and they're the little kids and they truck around and they go get in the brain scanner and they've been scanning their brains over, gosh, five, eight years. I mean, a very long period of time. And what they see is that the brain sensitivity to tone um, actually is accelerated in the kids who have been undergoing this very intensive musical training. And this is the story of the brain overall. The brain has these massive capabilities for parallel processing. And it, it, it should, I hope everybody finds that to be just so amazing that our brains are just, just these incredible, you know, 
squishy machines. Yeah. And and these kids, they actually have these these great byproducts of learning music. And there's there's also more classic studies of the actual anatomy of the brain and violinists and guitarists who who have to use their hands right. for very fine motor control. The parts of the brain that control the hand change dramatically as a result of musical practice. And in that case, it's a much more clear representation of, you know, the more they 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 master the the positions on the fretboard, the more the parts of the brain will grow and expand and and more areas of the brain will be dedicated to um, mastering this fine control of one's own own digits. So sensitivity to tone you mentioned. Right. That was a different study. Yeah, that's yeah. the study that we that So that what does that mean that you're sensitive to tone? Well they're but they're better able to tell when one tone begins. They just get better at listening to music, right? It's like hearing uh like perfect pitch, you know, so it's better able to detect a specific tone compared to another tone. They're better able to discriminate between breaking down um you know the types of tones and sounds in a in a piece of music. They they just get better at listening to music. But but the fact is that they could see this in actual brain activity. They could see that the brain was different and how sensitive it became to these tones. So are there um, any other consequences of music education um, aside from the hand? You know the guitar. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. you're talking about the violinist with the hand eye coordination or the sensitivity to tone. What else does the brain? I mean, what else changes in the brain from music? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a little outside of everything of my right, full depth outside. of knowledge. Yeah. But we do know from this same study that um, I think there were some indications that the children became more prosocial. This is a very social aspect. So learning to play music also puts people in closer contact with each other and they have to learn to depend on each other. So there were some other um, byproducts of how these kids socialize that seemed to be different as a result of education. And it's it's interesting, you will see a lot of the same benefits to socializing and to social social relationships for other intensive group practice like soccer or music and things like that. So things we do together, things we learn to do to depend on each other. Oh, see, we're circling back on gratitude here. Right. But uh, things we learn to do to depend on each other really enriches um, our development, our lives. And I can't help but think that there's going to be a, a long line of research about how good these things are for the brain and for the body. And you studied with um, your mentor, about the science of gratitude was who again was uh, Antonio Damasio. Okay. And, and he did his own research too in, in this area, right? I was the first of Antonio's uh, colleagues to do research on gratitude, but Antonio has a 30 year, 30, maybe 40 year track record of studying emotion in the brain. So working with Antonio, was was an incredible experience. He was, by the time I started working with him, you know, I think well regarded as one of the founders of the field of emotion and neuroscience. He was the one who first unpacked this complicated entanglement between decision making and emotion. We're taught that emotion is something that only hurts decision making. But in fact, when Antonio and his colleagues looked at brain lesion patients who had damage, a lesion just meaning damage to to part of the brain, who had damage to emotional parts of the brain, they found that um, their decision-making was drastically disrupted. Their decision-making 
was completely um, off the rails. And it was a result of the lack of emotion um, that doesn't allow them to fully execute a decision. And this sponsored a whole field of everybody kind of scratching their head going, oh, wow, these things all work together. The brain is one massive system, you know, and and it's all related to how we move, how we behave. Emotion, the word motion is not a not an accident. Motion is important. It, emotion is a behavior. It's a motor behavior in our body in oft, in many cases. And and it's it's built for us to survive. That's the the fundamental essence of the fight or flight response right. is a decision. It's a decision. If you ask a crowd of people, I do this with every talk, I say, why do we have emotion? And some people will say, oh, it's so we understand each other. And it's like, okay, that's good. And then eventually, if you just let people think about it for long enough, they'll realize that emotion is for decision-making, that you need emotion. You make the best decisions when you have a blend of emotion and reasoning, and you focus on the key emotions for good decision-making. That's calm, confidence, focus, trust, you know, all these things that we talk about, gratitude, right? That you, you can use to help make better decisions as opposed to the wrong emotions like um, some impulsivity, anger, hatred, fear. These are bad emotions for decision-making, I, for the most part, I believe. And um, so when we talk about emotion and decision-making, the key thing is to really learn how to have high resolution emotion that we learn to understand emotion. And that's my intersection with the mind because our what mind- What does high resolution mean? High resolution meaning, um, that's a great question. So it's, it's, I think of high resolution emotion as being able to learn to label your emotions with some degree of accuracy and resolution, meaning you can understand Sometimes you feel very frustrated, right? If right. you're working at work, sometimes you feel frustrated, but it feels a little bit different than the same frustration you have when you're sitting in traffic, right? And so learning to better distinguish which types of emotion, and there aren't really discrete emotions. I don't want people thinking there's fear and anger and they're completely different. They overlap and these things are are um, always engaging. There's a, there's a rich tapestry for every emotion. There's no discrete emotion per se. I really don't think that's the case. But we do know that if you learn to label specific emotions and learn to connect them to specific circumstances, if you just think about it, that's a really important thing for us to learn how to thrive. If we learn that we usually fall on our face for an opportunity when we feel socially challenged or socially threatened, and we learn that that this one specific emotion is usually what comes before a bad decision, then great, we can learn to unpack that. That's why I think practicing gratitude and people who are dealing with um, you know, mental challenges, learning to practice gratitude learns you or creates in us a skill for understanding our own bodies and learning to understand our own emotions. And, and it's really just a matter of learning to distinguish and then act and observe and watch and not listen to your mind so much when you're running away with anger. So you wait know. a second, yeah. calmness is an emotion? I would consider calm maybe an emotional feeling. Um, so I would consider calm calm an aspect of um, a state that the body can have. I would consider that. Okay. So when you say yeah. emotions help. Okay. So when you say emotions help decision making, yeah. you're talking yeah, about yeah. the so called yeah exactly. Ones. Usually, unless you know you're in the middle of a fire and and you need to feel afraid in yes. order to 
to exactly. escape, right? So exactly. then it's a good emotion to feel Right, fear. and that's part of so the high resolution, the meaning like high resolution, you have HDTV or, you know, 4K or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So that's that's exactly it. That anger, for instance, I think is a very toxic emotion, but at in very specific instances, it's probably probably useful if we really do need to defend ourselves. It can be useful. I think we over... Uh, you know, use it in things that don't need it. Right. You know, email. That's for instance. the problem, right? <laughs> that's the whole problem. Yeah. But, uh, um, but that's where that's where we can begin. That's where I like to think about this intersection of neuroscience and mind and daily practice as being a process of unpacking the this internal world that I think we all struggle with. This internal world being our our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts. Our, our self-talk, our worries about ourselves and our place in the world and everything in between. That's why I love, that's why to me, using neuroscience as a framework to understand these things has been so personally gratifying because we can dive in and then you start looking at how psychological health uh, leads to, quote, physical health. And I don't want to have that duality of mind and body here, but we do know, I've been reading all about these studies this week that Lower psychological stress predicts faster recovery from bodily injury. Like the same injury, the same surgery, the same everything. People who can manage to lower their stress, their body recovers faster. Right. And and the higher the stress, the higher, the the lower the immunity Mm -hmm. to disease, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, And there have been studies in mindfulness that show that the reduction of stress has reduced the sensitivity to uh, to illness, right? Has increased immunity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you see it. Yeah, it's 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 really wild. And I think it. What's great is from these, you know, more Eastern traditions that show or have philosophically arrived at this conclusion that the mind is something the body does, and we see this a lot in the brain that. We like to think that our mind is you somehow really special. You mean the really body special. is something the mind does? <laughs> Ooh, that's interesting. Okay, that's that's a deep way to look at it. I think that I would probably be a more Western spin on that. That's an interesting thing. The mind, the body is something the mind does. Yeah. What do you Isn't mean? Isn't the that? body the extension of the mind? So if the mind is under stress, the body will be under stress, and it'll be you know have less immunity to disease. Right, I mean, the- yes, I mean, it, well, it's a it's a two way street, right? I mean, sure, I think it's a two way street. I'm a little bit more of a materialist in that regard. That that the the I think of the the mind. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think of mind being the process by which images are are played into our own consciousness for us to act on. So, mind being not just the verbal self talk, but also the broader base of images of our world, of our internal state, of um, you know, our ability to do math or whatever, hold hold images in mind. So to, pardon the expression. Um, but this is this is, in my understanding, a process of the of the brain and of the body too. And so the brain is the body, it turns out. And but but the more we can do to unite how all these things work, how pain, just like you're saying, how stress leads to reduction in our ability to fight disease right. that that connection is well well known mm-hmm. but actually i think to date there's we're really just beginning to understand how that works it's a really it's a wild thing but it's not it's not so intuitive a lot of times that higher stress we, we it's unclear how higher stress leads to lower immune response there's a whole 
whole science of that. But uh, it's it's not a it's we know that it does, but the mechanism by which uh, stress hurts our body is is just beginning to be understood. It's very scientific to be careful about making any claims, right? To, to, I try to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that um, just as an aside, but I I really want my mission in my career to be using science to help people. And I think people are really smart. I think they have an intuitive sense of science. They have an intuitive sense of what makes sense. And they love hearing about actual details. There's only so simple we can make these things at times. But I always try to be precise in helping people catch up to what we know so they can they can use it better if they learn something wrong based on something i say and then they go practice something um then i don't know i would feel i, w- I wouldn't feel great about about that so i always try to i don't know i hope it helps i try to be as precise as possible also so people can learn to distinguish who's full of crap and who's not as yeah. well i'm probably somewhere in the middle <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh you know i think that i think hopefully listening to as accurate as, as I can make it as simple, but no simpler as All I right, can so make it. All right, so make this things. very simple. Yeah. We hear about these chemicals, uh, dopamine, serotonin on one hand, and epinephrine. Epinephrine. Mm-hmm. Epinephrine and uh, cortisol on the other. Mm-hmm. Is there evidence that uh, I feel like I'm a, a Perry Mason here in a court of law. Is there evidence <laughs> that <laughs> mindfulness, that the producer's cracking up, so yeah. she's making, is there evidence that mindfulness will uh, reduce the amount of cortisol secreted by what, the amygdala, where who, who secretes, I mean that cortisol. It will reduce the epinephrine, what is it? Epinephrine. Epinephrine, which is another word for adrenaline, by the way. Yes. And they just created this new word to be- What to a pain, be, right? Yeah, they want to be fancy. They want to, oh, look, I'm a scientist. I don't say adrenaline. I say epinephrine. We say, I say adrenaline. Well, you're unusual. You're a dude. You're a you're a bro, right? But I'm a bro. I'm an adrenaline bro. Yeah, an bro. adrenaline bro. That's what yeah. you know. And but anyway, so they so tell us about this. About the uh, is this something you want to talk about? I mean, sure. Let's roll. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so these are again very natural responses of the body of emotion to changes in our environment. Let's just put it in the most plain terms possible. Something you're here cruising around. Something happens. Uh, your body is going to mount a response to it. So in the event of adrenaline, it's it's released in the kidney into the bloodstream and it actually is a very quick quick response. and and it's it's lightning fast. So adrenaline then hits the hits the brain and everything else cascades from there through what we call the hypothalamic uh, pituitary thalamic axis, the HPA. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. and, um, it is there to manage the release of cortisol. Don't worry about all this stuff too much, but just think about it as adrenaline hits real quick and it triggers the body into a state to prepare for whatever comes next. I mean, in other words, fight or flight. Fight or flight, right. right. And then, um, and it, it has, it will go into some of the nuance in a second, but from there you have the cortisol that is learning to reallocate or is there to reallocate energy to, systems related to to running and fighting or freezing or whatever all the different things fear so it increases the blood going to your muscles yes and so when it does that what does it take away blood from it's taking away from your brain yeah so your brain is like a bookkeeper in a lot of these these chemicals are sort of their own little um bookkeeper and you only have so much energy to go around 
I'm looking for a good bookkeeper. I wish it was really true, but go ahead. <laughs> you have one. It's it's in it's your a, head. Yeah, it's in it your turns head. Out. Great. Yeah. It's doing great. Um, <laughs> so she looks completely befuddled. Go ahead. I like the shrug and the hands in the air. I think yeah. that's a good sign from your producer. <laughs> <laughs> Very encouraging. Yeah, it's really great. We're right. really engaging so people brutal. here. Brutal. Okay, keep yeah. going. So. Anyway, the bookkeeper in the right. brain. So the bookkeeper in the brain is saying, hey, we don't have enough for you to be thinking about um, your wonderful philosophies of life and planning out your creative impulses in the world. We're going to reallocate some sugar down to your butt so you can jump and your thighs and your, your pecs so you can run, jump, fight, do all that stuff. And so cortisol had some wonderful properties of of helping reduce pain of helping to optimize your if you're systems. in danger yeah. if you yeah, need exactly it. if you need it right that's right. what it was built for but unfortunately it gets secreted when we don't need it yes when, when we see a, an instagram post that <laughs> that annoys us exactly right? i was going to use email i think email is the world's uh you know lion in the savanna these days you know of all the different emails and i don't know i just think it's a really poor system for communicating in so many ways but apart from that but we have the same response you get a you get a bad email your brain will have the same adrenaline it'll knock over the dominoes and you have this whole cascade of events related to the stress response that literally limits your brain's ability to really do what we enjoy in life and it really limits really closes us down we see fewer fewer options in the world we're less creative and and that's the effect that stress can have that that interpreting stress as a threat can have see that's the that's the crux and that's the whole challenge versus threat thing that is so interesting that the stress can can kind of go either way you can also have stress that really lifts you up right so we're sitting in this beautiful recording studio i mean how many wonderful albums have been recorded here all the the music that's been here you can come into this place i mean it's full of microphones those will terrify people this is a this is a performance hall that we're sitting in right, right now right that can that can trigger a stress right into that threat state completely. I'm Just sure you for me every day, every all the day. time. Yeah. And you get through it. You must have this with some of your musicians coming here, right? Do you have musicians ever come in here and just clam up? Or how do people, I mean, you have some some pressure here for people to perform. Well, you have perform. all kinds of things, you know. Yeah. Sometimes you have clamming and sometimes you don't. I mean, yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's the difference. But the stress, right? Everybody still has to produce something. If you're mm-hmm. here, you're on the clock. You've got to make something. You got to make something that people want to listen to and buy and deal with, right? So, so that stress, the event, the performance is the same, but the interpretation of that performance for where our mind takes it can take us into the the domain of feeling like it's a threat or the domain of rising and feeling like it's a challenge. Aha! That threat or challenge. Threat or challenge. That's the classic dichotomy, right? That's the choice. Yes. And yeah, and that the it the, the, turns out that the body treats these two paths. A very in in a very intricate and different way, and it's it's stunningly beautiful. But the the heart will beat fast in both cases, but in the threat case, it's actually going to be pumping less blood. So you'll notice when you feel that stress, you feel that activation, you're getting excited. You know, if you're getting up for the challenge, a lot of the same physiological symptoms are still there. Right, right? palms are still sweating, heart rates up, all these things. But there's there's a subtle difference in how the heart is beating. And that really is where it's keeping enough blood into the brain to keep us open, to keep our mind open, to keep keep us ready to receive information, ready to focus on the resources we have to do what we need to do to, to perform. 
So, right? so yeah. in layman's terms, I want to make sure I understand. Am I this. going like way too in the weeds here, <clears throat> by the way? No, no. Okay. No, but, but, but I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So you're uh, confronted with a situation, right? And this is not a black and white in terms of, oh, there's a lion at the door and right. I got it. But this is, that's me, right? Yeah. Well, when, when so. Hannah, the producer, is looking like she's grimacing, but it turns out she's actually laughing at our inane jokes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it turns yes. out that's a that's a stressor that could go challenge or threat either way. And I spun it threat instead yep. of a challenge. It's, it's a- you know, public speaking is the exact venue. I think you were talking about, you know, when this happens when we're confronted with something. Public speaking is is my favorite domain to work with people in because it is it is a stressor. It's a perfect venue for learning how your body works and how you handle uh, stress. Oh, good. We got to get into this because that's a big problem for me, even though I do a lot of public speaking. Oh, sure. Yeah, let's dive a in. A lot, but I do my fair yeah. share. Yeah. So let's go for it, Charlie. Okay. But uh, but first, I want to get back to the threat. I want to make sure okay. I understand. Yes. Because I think this is a very crucial point. Uh, that was bad grammar. This is a very crucial point that we are confronted with situations that we could interpret many times that are ambiguous, right? Or maybe they're not totally balanced, but you could spin it positive as as a challenge. And that's what people, I think, lack is how do you spin it positive? We know the negative is threat. How do we make it positive? Ah, consider it a challenge. I love it. If people, that's your idea. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Yeah, so that's our- that's... I'm just trying to interpret what you said. Thank you. No, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. So- so the thing is that uh, it's very hard, right? It, to, yes. How do you do that? How do you take what could be a threat and say, oh, because you need a certain kind of personality, a personality that likes to be challenged, don't you? Yes. I think it depends. Well, do I want to agree to that? I don't want to agree to that just yet. Okay. Um, no, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah, just no, throwing no. out a question. Yeah, no, no. I love it. So, so it takes practice. So think of it like a skill. Uh, think of it like a skill. You can say, think of it for people who are just starting their their meditation practices, right? And not like us who are experts in it and, you know, I'm just kidding. But um, nothing? Anyway. <laughs> no, you know um, what? I'm sorry. No, I'm just joking when around. You just, when you said about the practice, yeah. that, I'm sorry, it just expl- it was an explosion in my mind. Yeah. Because I related it to my personal experience as a composer. Like, I used to hate back in the day when I was just focusing on producing records, the idea of a deadline. I thought a deadline was like prison. You know, I need time to develop the song. Yeah, yeah. Creative I process. To get it yeah. right. So when when we got deadlines, it was a threat. I don't want to hear about deadlines. Then when I started working TV, you have no choice. You have a deadline. You, you have a gig. You got to deliver by the deadline. There's no discussion. So then I took it as a challenge. And I liked it. I like having a deadline because it made me focus and made me, you know, let's get this done. As a matter of fact, I, I, I liked the deadline more when there was an air date because then I knew that everybody else has a deadline and they can, you know, they can play with it. I, I could use the word screw on this podcast. Sure. Thank you. So I could screw around with, you know, oh, what, no, they well, can't. the language here, Richard. <laughs> they, they can't, you know, the, the other powers that be can't screw around with the music right. when they have time mm-hmm. and they don't have a deadline. They, they give you notes. But if they don't have time, they, they'll put it on the air. So that, so, yep. okay, so that I'm relating to that. That was a forced 
I was forced to look at it as a challenge. And if I if, mm-hmm. if you're going to succeed at mm-hmm. it, I guess some people would would crumble under that kind of pressure. But but uh, and I'm not claiming that I haven't crumbled under that pressure. But uh, but okay, so that's an example I understand. Yeah. What's another way for the average? Either a musician or not a musician. For for people, for, for me people, too. I mean, I'm not. Yeah, this is this is for everyone. For everyone. Yeah. To practice this turning a threat into a challenge, when it's uh, when it's possible. Right. Let me describe some of the mind states that are associated with a challenge state as opposed to a threat. So, like you're saying, when you learn to have deadlines as a useful tool to push you toward going, okay, great, I'm I'm excited about this. I'm going to get it done. That mind state, that that thinking process is actually very consistent across all kinds of domains that the things you think about when you're in a challenge state compared to a threat state are focused on how you think about your resources. So we'll we'll unpack exactly the challenge state and then kind of how we can practice and get a little better at it. So first thing is is we need to know this is where you need to get to. You need to get to the point where stress, what we need to get to is the point where stress helps us focus on the resources we have to do what we need to do. We need to focus on how we can stay engaged and in the moment of the stress mm-hmm. and stay engaged with it. Look it in the eye and do your best. Do your your effing best to see what you got, right? That's a challenge state. It's focusing on making the best of the resources you have and it's really looking at things in the eye, not ducking out, and if possible, a little bit of joy sprinkled in. And I don't mean joy happiness. I mean joy of going, wow, the joy of curiosity, the joy of discovering how our minds work when we're squeezed, when we're when we're pinned against the wall. That's a challenge state. So the good news is we can practice. We can practice that and we can focus on that through a variety of tactics. You can use what, what we like to call when will statements, right? And this is a way of making imagery. So your brain is image maker. Do you remember when we were, we were talking about the mind? And I said, right. the mind is really basically just a, image a, a, a an image machine. It's right. sometimes language, sometimes just whatever we have. Um, and Freud would have said the mind is a sex machine, but go ahead. Freud said a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> Freud said we're a cauldron of seething excitation, which I think is the funniest description. Anyway, there's a whole, I there's like a whole that. thing. Yeah, that was his picture of the id. We won't, we won't get into it, but um, so so image machine. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and so anyway, so you can you can make these images. That's the beauty of your mind is that in, you can be subjected to the mind, or we can be subjected to our minds and all the the nonsense that we're telling ourselves all the time. That's mostly pointless, but we can also use it for generating images that push us closer to the challenge state. So the idea is called a when will statement. So before, sometimes you're just stressed and sometimes something bad happens, you're kind of in the moment and you get walloped. But there's other stress that we know is coming up, a deadline, a presentation, performance, a, a hard conversation, right? A, a difficult conversation, a performance, any of these things. And so we call it a when will statement, not an if then, it's a when will statement, meaning when I am preparing for when I am preparing to take the stage. I will take three deep breaths and relax, right? And you're saying what you're really doing is putting your mind, you're building a map 
for where you want your mind and your body to go when you're actually placed into the stressful situation. You can do a number of things in this domain. You can say, when I'm about to take the stage, I'm going to take stock of all my preparation. I'm going to remember to have fun. I think fun is really underrated in the world. I think it's mm. I think it's a key drive. I think we need more fun. I yeah. think it's drastically missing Absolutely. fun, play. Yeah. Just it's just so so sad how how you're looked at like a weirdo if you're having fun all yeah. the time. And it's a key yeah. element of our human thriving. It's just just yeah. go have fun. And the other thing is that, you know, when you when you start to have fun, your mind will open. Your mind will open and you'll find more creative solutions. Um, so great. That's and, so and great. That's, and, and you're talking that's about the challenge state. It's okay. And, and dude, it's not that like it, we, we put so much on these external things mm. and they're still going to be arbitrary. They're, they can be wonderful. Um, uh, you know, take the, the proverbial gold medal and studies have shown that, that Olympians who win a gold medal are more likely to develop depression than Olympians who win a silver medal. And it has to do with the meaning we place on these external markers of things, which are in the day, at the end of the day, like entirely, um, I don't want to say entirely, but basically entirely arbitrary. Why, Why the, do the gold medal winners develop depression? Oh, well, because of the story that they've told themselves about what the gold medal will mean, right? Their whole life has oh. been get the gold medal, get the gold medal. And then you get the thing and you go... Uh, okay, great. I'm done, right? And people go, now you wake up, eat breakfast tomorrow, and like, oh, one gold medal. This guy won thirty or what? You know, exactly. look at Michael Phelps, and then it's like, and music. It's like you have a hit record, yeah, and you get that hit record, and you're elated. It's a high for a while, right, of course. But then the next record comes out, and you're going, is this gonna go to number one? Right. Are that was gonna... pretty fun, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yep. Same thing with the gold medal. That's great. Very similar. Um, and so, so learning to, we call it learning to not outsource our emotion regulation, meaning that this is our internal story, how we regulate emotion, meaning how we handle the, 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 the upwelling of changes in our body, right? How we think about our stressors, how we think about our, our, our hurdles and setbacks and all these things, you know, how we regulate these emotions um, is, a, is a job for our mind. It's a job for us. It's a job for us to to play with. It's, oh, wait, hold on. So I want to circle sorry. back yeah, to, yeah, to, to the image-making brain. And so, oh, yeah. It was and way fun. far away from there. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> well, well, it's all interrelated, but but the idea, which I love, by the, and I think is so true, Yeah. the idea of joy and the idea of making it fun. So you're actually, let's say you have to give, uh, you're a musician, you got to go on stage and do a recital or yeah. whatever it is. Um, so you visualize, are you visualizing what it's going to be like? Oh, I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to have fun and, and the audience is going to love me. That kind of thing. When you, when you say, are you talking about yeah. visualization? I think what you want to do is for performance, um, you know, you want to have an image of, in mind of, of how you want to feel as much as you want to have an image of mind of how you want to perform. And, and you want to be ready for anything you don't want to depend on anything else to be out there that's why i'm not a big fan of superstition you want to be able to walk on that stage and and do your best with whatever's out there right and so you don't want to depend on being able to tie your right shoe before your left shoe you don't want to depend on um you know having your mom in the right seat or your dad or whatever you want to be able to be free with it and to walk on and just explore what's going to happen um do you do you know the the Coln concert keith jarrett oh yes do you do you know the backstory behind that 
I hope it, I've heard the backstory. I hope it's right. Do you know about this? About No, I don't know the backstory. So it's, okay, I hope this is right. To all the jazz aficionados. It's an easy question for you to answer because I don't know any backstories, but go ahead, tell me one. <laughs> okay, good. Well, hopefully this is right. If 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 somebody wants to throw their piano at me, I understand. Keith Jarrett is a Keith great Jarrett, thank uh, you. piano yes. player yeah. who's known for improvisations, right? Going on forever, yeah. right? A- yeah, and so he, he had this um, recording called the Koln Concert, yeah, K-O-L-N, very famous. Very famous. Yes. And the story I've heard, and I like it so much, I'm going to believe it no matter what, but yeah. is he showed up to the concert hall and it was somebody who basically talked him into uh, coming in and performing. And it was, he walked in and it was a dead venue and the piano is a total piece of crap. And they he, they had brought all the recording. They're going to record. It's a big deal. He's It's like, they're they're excited to send it out there. And he shows up and this piano is a total wreck. And the guy is saying like I can't I can't do this. This isn't going to work. This isn't in tune. And and it turns out he pretty much was forced to go out there and perform. And what was happening was he was working so hard to make the piano make the right notes to stay in tune. You can hear him grunting in the the recording. You can <laughs> hear him physically like massaging the sounds out of the piano. And it was enough to sort of help him stay in the moment. He was so focused on just working with this piano. He was able to produce one of the greatest works of improvisation yeah. uh, that that is out there. Huh. Even so, it, so the thing is that if we're waiting for these external circumstances to be perfect uh-huh. for us to perform at our best, you're going to wait a long time. It will never work. That's the thing about this challenge state is it's not saying I'm going to wait for everything to be perfect to do my best and to perform my best. That's never going to happen. You're, it's always going to be one thing off or the other. And and even if everything is perfect, even if you do have all the resources to to be great, your mind can still trip on itself, right? right. So, so that's the thing is learning to dissociate A, our, our efforts from what we feel we're owed by the world, um, and B, sort of our, our efforts to make the best out of whatever we have. We never have enough resources. You're always resource limited. And yet some people really thrive in this because they learn to accept it really well. And other people just struggle with their whole life. This is the basis of making excuses for things. And most, you know, if you really listen to people making excuses for things, you go, yeah, yeah, it's probably true. I think it's very important, though, circling back a little bit to what you said about how you're going to feel. Like mm-hmm. you, yes. yeah, yeah, you yeah. picture yeah. how you're going to feel, or you set an intention, I'm going to have fun doing this, and, yeah. and this is how I'm going to feel. And do you go to as far as saying, and the audience is going to react this way too. Do you do you I do don't that? Know. I, wouldn't, that I wouldn't. External? Go there. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would. I would call that pretty external. Um, although it's it's always the trappings of our ego, right? To be excited about the the feedback we're going to get. Um, well, if we didn't have ego, we wouldn't go out there to perform no. in the first place. Yeah, I think very rare. I think some people would. I think some people would. I think without an ego from validation from others. Ego derived ah, from good point. the excitement that other people tell them how great they are. That's a good point. We out, we interviewed Alex Honnold, the uh, the world famous rock climber, the guy who free soloed El Capitan. He is somebody that if you turned off the cameras, deleted all his Twitter followers and Instagram followers, and Alex is amazing. I met him. He's the nicest guy. He's a great guy. Um, can't say enough good things about him as a person and how he dealt with us. He was incredible. Um, 
and and my interview portion was entirely mediocre. <laughs> Speaking of getting feedback from the world, but uh, having no ego. But go ahead. Of course, no ego at all. But um, but Alex is someone I really believe. If you deleted all the trappings of all the credit he's gotten, he'd be back on that rock tomorrow. He would be doing the same exact thing. He'd still be striving to figure out how how hard he can climb, what challenges he can have, because he's that is someone who's just deeply curious about the process and loves climbing rocks. I mean, we kept trying to dig into his mindset and he would just be like, I don't know, man, I like climbing rocks that it's pretty simple. And, and it's a very simple vision, but that's, that's the way a lot of this wisdom is around the mind. It's always, it's usually pretty simple, but it's really a commitment to that, that simple, uh, uh, you know, statement that that's really where you get the best stuff, I think. So <clears throat> what you were saying about threat and challenge is from a scientific point, from a biological mm-hmm. point of view. Mm-hmm. Yes. The threat and the challenge look exactly the same. Barring the difference of how much blood the heart is pumping. So it pumps less in the challenge than it does in the in threat? In the threat. Less in the threat. It less in the threat. Yes, less in the threat. So you're getting more, you're getting bigger, um, bigger pumps of blood up into the lungs uh, in the challenge state. So it's still beating very quickly. Yeah. Um, it's still elevating in stress, but it's in the threat case. This is actually measured by by actually measuring the the kind of the the impedance in the body, meaning like how mm-hmm. how hard it is for an electrical right. charge to go across right. uh, a membrane. And it, and the greater the um, degree of blood being pumped and moved predicts whether or not people will be in a challenge. It actually predicts how well people will perform too. So the more blood, the the more better? blood, the better. Yeah, more blood, the better. So that's when some performers say they get nervous before they perform and they need to get nervous. I think Keith Richards, Richards yeah. says he has to throw up and this guy's been performing forever, right? Before he performs and then when he does, he knows it's going to be good. Yeah. So the reason it's good to get nervous is because you're going to get pumped more yeah, blood totally. and your performance will be yeah, better. If you absolutely. Perform- Whoa. Yeah, yeah. You can't just look at that elevation as, as, a, as a problem. I mean, I get... I taught the same class for three or four years. You still teach, you still do stuff. Yeah. I get nervous for every public speaking thing I do. I did 60 some odd keynotes and panels and I still get nervous, but I go, I, here's a here's a good reframing is, is I just say, hey, this is the feeling I get before something awesome happens, before I learn something about myself. You know, what else am I going to do? How else am I going to learn about myself if I don't do this? And once you start going, are you still as nervous or calm down eventually? It depends. Depends, it depends. on the talk. But I'll calm. I calm down, and I, you know, in the best state um, because I love public speaking because I because it because it makes me nervous. Um, I find that in the best state, when I start connecting with the audience and I start seeing some looks of of recognition of interest in what I'm saying, then then I get excited. I want to help them. I want to say, hey, here's what I know. What do you know? And I've I've talked about gratitude for 10 years. I still get people saying interesting things I'd never heard of or thought of for gratitude. People are really smart. You you connect with people with this science, they'll elaborate, they'll find they we really uh, have have untapped potential for thinking like scientists. That's what I love about it. And so in these talks before I give a talk, I used to have a lot more dread before these talks. Before I'd go out, I would have a lot more why did I ever choose to do this? This is so pointless. This is so optional. I have a lot more dread of that sort of, why did I choose this? And now I have a little less dread and still a good amount of anxiety. Nervous energy, I will call it. Maybe not anxiety. And you like that. You like the nervous energy. Yeah, of course. You like getting nervous. Yeah, yeah. I like like it because I learn about, 
I learn from the audience. I learn about how I handle the stress. And then, and I mean, man, I've had some bad ones out there too. I mean, my, my speaking of my interview with Alex Honnold was fine, but I was too mellow for that. I was not nervous enough for that. I was, I was way too mellow and I don't, I'm not, it was fine. It was totally fine. Everybody was good, but it wasn't great. But, you know, I'm sensing a, an assumption here that the energy required for an interesting performance can only come from pressure or stress. Can't the energy required for a good performance come from other sources? Let's say ambition or what you talked about, the desire to enhance the understanding of other people and stuff like that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you know, I don't want to say this is the only path, but this is sort of my experience of, of how to handle um, you know, stress and performance is that I've uh, that I just get excited for it. But I think I think there's probably another level of people who are just so deeply curious about what they're what kind of fabric they're made of that that they will have a sort of calm excitement, a calm power before they roll out and do something. I've I've spoken with football players um, and and um, special force you know military operators who fall asleep in the helicopter on the way to the battlefield. You so know? what does that mean? What is that? Mean? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, is that I think, good? Or, that means they're so calm that they can just I think well these circuits are are interesting. They're not linear. It's not a uh-huh. one to two sort right. of thing. You can overdrive a circuit and the body can go, you know what? Take a nap. Take a nap. And and these things are, you know, a big old mishmash of chemicals and activities. And um yeah, and they'll say, man, the best sleep I've ever gotten was the uh the helicopter ride to the battlefield or one of one of my favorites uh, he was a really famous quarterback and he was playing in a national championship game and the he could hear the crowd stomping the 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 locker room was shaking with the crowd jumping yeah and he sat in his locker and passed out they had to wake him up and be like hey man what are you doing get out there and he just passed out like asleep so the body can do all sorts of weird things and he played well they won i mean so so I'm not saying this is the thing, but all it goes back to that point of about high resolution, though that that learning to obey sort of where your body's going can open us up to some neat things, and learning to look at things objectively, to look at you know the stress before public speaking as as an as an avenue for self discovery, or learning how to say, boy, how relaxed can I get in this situation, and what happens if I get too relaxed? What happens if I get too excited? And learning to just treat it as its own little laboratory can be the best process. It's it's like science for our own life. It's like the science of the big adventure. Well, there's a couple of things I want to go back to. Um, <clears throat> I want to get back to the nervous. By the way, do I make you nervous? I'm terrified. Yeah, that's, so that's a good thing, right? Because <laughs> no, you like to get nervous. No, I'm, I mean, I'm elevated. I mean, I'm excited. But that maybe, I don't know, this is the thing for me personally, is I always wonder, you know, am I, am I doing the best job I can to reach people? If I'm getting this excited, but I like being excited. So I don't know. It makes me wonder, you know, it makes me wonder if I could be more calm and do better, but I kind of like it. So I'm wondering if you're conflating being excited about something Mm -hmm. and getting nervous about it. Cause nervous is, is a negative feeling. It's yeah. Let's just say excited. I say aroused. That's my favorite word. I mean, we use the word arousal in terms of the, the biological systems of, of, Getting up, so and, you and, like being aroused yes. and energized and excited yes. about talking. I like enthusiasm. not getting nervous about it. No, no, nervous might not be the best word. Okay, not the best word. No, I mean, I I deal with anxiety. I have these things. I think a lot of these people who are driven and ambitious, 
you know, it's, it's a constant thing, but that's why I like sitting. That's why I sit, you know, every morning, if not most mornings. Um, I'm glad to hear that. You, to, uh, well, it absolutely helps. Thanks to you. It was our conversation years ago or a, a month or no, what was that? It was about a year ago. About a year ago. Yeah. Holy smokes. Where's the time go? But, uh, um, you know, I think you have to sit, you have to sit. Um, oh, that's great. I really think you do. It. And it, 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 it's so thank you, but it, it, and it really, it really helps. It helps you just clean the slate. Nothing magic happens. Um, but that's what helps me do the work, you know? And so, so I would definitely distinguish the excitement that I have to be here, to talk with you, to explore these ideas far away from, you know, any anxiety about, you know, um, you know, the future or the worries about, you know, health, family, safety, you know, the sorts of things that can pop up as well. So by sitting and practicing when you sit, right? Yeah. So that helps you spin a situation into a challenge versus a threat. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Because it learns to, it learns (laughs) because I learn or I, we learn to put a little space between a, that emotion, the mind thoughts that run from it and just put a little space in there to sort of see that it's sort of just going to float by if you don't grab it. And that, that's the fun. That's really what I've been working on a lot is the joy of learning to just let those thoughts go through, just let them go through. And you talked about this in your book um, about learning, just, just let them, let them pass through and see if you can attach as little meaning as possible, even to the most, you know, vile thoughts that we can have, the most angry thoughts we can have and go, oh, that's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. And just phew, let it go. And you can have the response. You can have the the elevation of everything and still go, oh, oh well, I'm done with that. I'm gonna let that go. That to me is the fun. That's where I that's why I like sitting. And the more I've learned to accept that, um I I know that people who practice a lot or accept that the mind is going to run, especially if you don't do the the in-depth, silent, lonely work that a lot of people that you do, that a lot of our friends do, yeah. where they'll do the the weekend silent retreat and the deep, long meditations that I have not done. Um, so I've learned to sort of accept that what I get, the benefit, what I get of practicing is just a little space in the thoughts, a little space in the emotion and the thoughts. And I I know that if you practice more deeply, you get even more joy, more expansion, you you absolutely get these benefits from these long retreats, um, and and that's just something I just haven't done yet. I'm going to, but good. Um, I encourage that. Oh, I you have to. I think yeah. it's the most interesting thing is like go go sit there, you know, and uh, and when you're sitting yeah. like you you you've been doing, you're conditioning. You talk about training the yes. mind, conditioning yes. the mind to stop to pause to hit the pause button for a second. This is what's happening. And I could react to it as a threat or I could react to it as a challenge. And I really like what you said about nervousness and excitement. So when I'm getting nervous, I go, this is good because it's getting me the the blood that I need. It's getting me excited. So to look at this as a positive thing, right? Yeah. Okay. I love that. And I still want to practice and it's made a deep impression on me and the idea of looking at these situations as oh i'm gonna have fun when you think ahead of it mm-hmm. whatever it might be i mean we all we- yeah i would say i would say i'm gonna i'm gonna be curious about what happens right, right. that right. you know as opposed to the just the recreational fun aspect like river rafting or something right but uh, you know when we're stressed to say i'm so excited to see what happens about this 
you know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to try to help out whomever I can with this. And I'm really curious to see how it turns out. I'm excited, yeah. you know, and that, that to me is very close for fun. That's enthusiasm. That's enthusiasm is a really important part of what our brains do. It's central to the brain circuits for finding food, finding love, finding anything. That enthusiasm is a core brain emotion. It's a really good thing. It's a good thing to foster. Do you have any scientific comments to make about biologically what happens with enthusiasm? 100%. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's all kinds of research that you can lesion, um, but that is damage a specific part of the brain in rodents and then put them in a space where there is food and their affect, their their feeling state, their their mood is so flat. They're fully capable of, of thinking, of finding, of solving problems, of doing all these things. But the complete lack of enthusiasm, they will basically starve because they will never search around their environment for food. Uh, and so it's, it's depression. No, it's that that's depression. So the inverse of enthusiasm is basically just depression and, and these circuits in the, what we call the paraaqueductal gray, uh, these circuits of the brain that help us launch a, a dedicated and enthusiastic response to find resources in whatever environment we're in. Those are core circuits for survival, for thriving and, and they, they can absolutely be damaged. They can be damaged by events in life. They can be damaged by grief. They can be damaged by loss and all these different things. But then they, but can, they can be, be recovered. The, the, exactly. Amen. Yeah. Speaking of rats, they did this experiment where they gave rats cocaine, <laughs> a set of rats cocaine, and they measured their, I don't know, their happiness or whatever. And then they 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 gave they gave them days where they built like a Disneyland for rats, so they had all these rides they could go on and you know these challenges etc. And then they gave them a choice: Do you want the cocaine or you want you want to go play? And they all went for the playing. Oh, they interesting! I don't know that study. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it it's it satiates us at a really deep level. That kind of play. That connection with others is is the brain's stress relief. That's your your um, endorphins, so to speak. But your opioid um, uh, circuits are there. That's what we think is doing what the work of gratitude is. These these opioidergic pain relieving circuits. That's um, what I was going to ask you. Yeah, does gratitude yeah. elicit more secretion of opioids? In, in that's our hypothesis okay. right now. That's that's how we think about things. That's what we are interested in and it, there's different types of gratitude there's different scales there's different events but to me the deep form of gratitude of of really somebody bailing you out of a really a really bad serious situation that deep sense of of somebody seeing our own dignity and wanting to help us that that gratitude has an element of pain to it i i think so um personally and i think that 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 circuitry is going to be a lot of these stress relief opioid um, um, you know systems in the brain does uh, meditation <clears throat> lead to more uh, endorphins or I don't know um, I'd have to look it up but I, I think it um, I think it depends on the meditation actually back to the mindset training that's part of what the beauty of it is I'm just gonna ask you yeah well that's what the beauty is right that you can do different things I mean I think that in some ways, gratitude journaling is a mindset training activity. So is counting breath. Um, but you can also do different imagery exercises. You can do a loving kindness meditation. It's not so much mindfulness. You know, there's some there's some flavor in how you want to describe mindfulness and meditation that it, that I think is important. Um, but there's a lot of things that if you just think about 
you know, what do you want to do for 30 minutes to help your mind do a little better? What do you want to do to sharpen the knife a little bit? Great question. And there's so many, there's, there's a lot we can do. That's what the Institute is here for. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to, it's what I try to do in my day-to-day life. And it's not, I just don't think it's worth, um, uh, separating from going to the gym if you go to the gym every day people will be pretty excited like yeah right on you know but if you say oh i meditate for 45 minutes a day you know i think we're coming to a place where people go oh that's pretty cool but it's still if you said if you're hanging out with your friends and you said hey guys i'm gonna disappear and go meditate for 45 minutes they're gonna go what but if you say i'm gonna go for a run for 45 minutes people go right on yeah i love the commitment and, and I think we need to get these things back in touch with it, with this discussion we've had about the mind and the body, that they work together and you can train one just as you train the other. Yeah. What is mindset in three boxes? Oh, mindset in a box. So oh, a this box. is a talk we give, um, and and I just call it the mindset in a box talk. This is what I um, talk oh, about with your students. Oh, you, you created? Yeah, it's just a, it's just a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek way of okay. saying, like, in two hours, my, my question is, in two hours what could you really say to someone that actually affects and improves their mind in terms of giving people tools to understand the way their mind works and to affect change in whatever they're trying to do to perform better you know so the mindset in a box talk focuses on three elements of mental practice and mental framing that uh, are based in science that you know some of them are pretty pretty basic but i think uh, we've we've built around these things, but they're they're principles that people can learn to go. Oh, that is neat. That is how the mind works. So, um, so yeah. What are they? Oh, I don't know. If, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, um, they, um, the the three are one is called locus of control. Locus of control meaning locus is place. Control is a uh, control, I guess. But uh, um, so it just means it's how we ascribe. This is these are classic tales from from. Sports psychology, by the way. So locus of control is basically how we ascribe the events that happen to us. You can have a high internal locus of control, which is what we should practice to Mm -hmm. do, which is to say that we can control our responses to things effectively. You can't control what happens to you, Lord knows, but you can control a lot about how you think about it. And so you dive into that. This is locus of control. A higher internal locus of control is associated with slower age-related decline in certain brain regions. So a higher internal locus of control is is another word for this. It's a fancy locus of control is a mouthful. Another word for it is sort of self-effectiveness or self-efficacy, meaning you believe that you can be effective in what you want to do. If you want to become good at guitar, you can become good at guitar, right? You're, you can become better than where you are, right? Anybody could. Um, and so that's it, that you can be effective, that the things you practice will lead to um, useful changes. Um, then so that means yeah. that there are there are areas that you can control, there are areas that you cannot control. Yep. So you got to recognize both. I think that yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't control what people um, right. say to you. Right. How you can't really control you're treated by people. You can't no. really control the weather. You can't really control. Can't control much. Much. No. Much. You can control how you treat other people. Yes. You can control how hard you work. You can control how you respond to things. how you respond to things. Yes. You know, if you break it down, there's a lot of our internal state that we can control. Right. And and then you start breaking that down into, okay, I can break this down. And this goes back into that challenge and threat saying, okay, I'm going to work with whatever I got. I'm going to make, I'm going to take control of the things I have. If it's a crappy piano in a terrible hall, I'm going to take control and make the best of it. 
Um, and that's that's one of the pillars of of the mindset in a box talk that we like to give. Do you want yeah. the other two? Yes, please. Okay, good. Um, and I'm glad you got rid of the locusts because uh, you know they're <laughs> annoying bugs. You know, yeah. Historically some, speaking, uh, there's yeah. some there's some baggage there. Yeah, it's much better with the self efficacy. <laughs> yeah, well, go ahead. Let, don't let Thank me you. interrupt you rudely as I usually do. What the heck, the man? I'm a guest here. Yeah, Richard. No, so, um, <laughs> no. Yeah. So the other the 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 next one. Um, we call growth mindset. Um, and this is a really, this is a very standard um, educational trope now, courtesy of Carol Dweck from Stanford. And and it's a really basic principle, but you can see it all the time. So your growth mindset is really the internal belief we have that our abilities can change, that they can grow, and that we can take steps wherever we are to improve ourselves. The the inverse of a the opposite of a growth mindset is a fixed mindset, mm. which has to do with the talents are talents. You are what you are. You're carved out of stone, and you're great or you're not. You know, so it's a matter of seeing yourself as being energized and full of potential, or or something as a statue cut from stone. And and that simple belief predicts a lot of how we do in the world. It's very basic. I mean, if you really unpack it, it's basically saying, hey, you can learn stuff. Uh, so it, it can be a little silly. It's overwrought. You hear about growth mindset all the time. I think some of it, it's not the magic sauce of things, but it's just a nice little story we can tell ourselves that's a lot better. It's backed by some some good science and and it really can tell us a lot that like, hey, prime yourself a little bit to say, hey, this challenge is worth engaging in and and I can grow from it. It's a game changer. Yeah. Uh, it's called gro- mindset growth. growth mindset growth mindset growth mindset yeah check That's out the it. book mindset by carol dweck it's a nice tour of her research um it's fun it's, it's you can see it in sports and athletes and business people oh, business all over the place business is a wreck life, for these things in life to tell people yeah you can change as a lover and, as and, everything right yeah yeah you can change everything is impermanent yes including who you are on a certain level, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and that is a game changer. I found it to be a game changer. Yeah. And that's one of the great geniuses, by the way, of Buddhist philosophy, right? That everything is in flux and impermanent. Yeah. I think that's really important. I, it's it's really, it's a very empowering thing. And it it does show too, like, so gratitude, um, my favorite thing that I keep talking about. But uh, the thing is too, that, that if we're depending on these external things to feel good inside, that's the that's the fool's errand. That's the trap. And growth mindset isn't saying wait till things are great to do great. It's not saying hey wherever you got that's what you got and you get what you get and you don't get upset. You know that sort of thing. And it's saying no, not really. You're never gonna have everything you need. You're never gonna. You can always tell a story of how you're impoverished and and have issues. And and they've they've shown even in growth mindset in populations of strongly at-risk youth, of people who are really up against the bad stuff, um, this simple thing of saying, you know what, I can I can get better from this. I can do better from this. I can take steps to to rise above whatever, even, even incrementally above wherever I am now. That simple self-belief really does predict performance. Yeah. And you can rewire your brain. Absolutely. I don't know about the brain for the growth mindset thing. Sorry, <laughs> I have to be caveat emptor. No, but, but I uh, mean- But oh, you absolutely can rewire how you think about things. It, it will change the brain. I, I, I'm sure of that. No, my, yeah. I, what I'm trying to say is that the brain can change, 
right? You can rewire your brain. It can oh, yeah. change yeah. The, the, the plasticity or the mm-hmm. whatever, the chemical. It changes the way it does business. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's just a possibility that you should know that this can happen. Yes. That's, yeah. that's a growth mindset to know that you can change your brain. Yeah, and you can change your capabilities. You know, um, I, I've been really lucky. I've had an, a kind of strange and interesting life, but I, you know, when I was a kid, um, my, they filmed Back to the Future 3 in my hometown. And uh, I had been in a couple of local plays at the time. And my parents were really good about saying, like, just go for it, see what happens. And so they had auditions, and I managed to get a speaking role in Back to the Future 3. No kidding. Yeah. In the movie? Yeah, in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I said, you here's like your gun, mister. Yeah, so you, I have an IMDb page um, from, <laughs> from uh, that show where I said, anyway, so I got to meet Michael J. Fox. And, and again, everybody was telling me the whole time, like, look, you little podunk country kid from Tuolumne County, nobody's going to give you this role. There's Hollywood kids going for this. And I was like, I don't care. I don't know. It seems cool. These lines are fun. I like doing this. And they, so I got that. And then that, that early lesson in my life really taught me like, Hey, Hey, put yourself out there and go for it. And don't wait for permission to do stuff. You know, I mean, you fast forward that lesson that I learned when I was nine has transcended everything. When I started um, graduate school, I had not taken a single neuroscience class when I started my neuroscience PhD. And I just thought, well, I can learn it. You know, I, I can outwork people. And the first semester was was brutal. I mean, I was not away from a book. I was recording the lectures and playing them home on my drive home to get caught up because I was getting smoked. But I dug deep and I said, well, it's just stuff. I can learn one fact. If I said my shirt is brown, you can learn that fact. That's not that hard to learn. So why can't you learn this molecule binds to that receptor? It's just a fact. It just has fancy sounding words. So I just started saying, well, I'm just going to stack these facts up, make sure I'm understanding the complexity and learning to understand relationships. And I'm going to map it to all the other things I did. So I was, um, I thought I was going to be a mechanic before I went to graduate school and and so I would spend a lot of time thinking, how does this work like a car? How does this work like an engine? And that that skill set, that's a growth mindset. That's what's bailed me out of so many tough spots. And it's just said like, well, you can learn stuff. You don't have to wait for it. It's been, it, I really, it, I, I advocate, I kind of vandalize for it because it really does like, it makes a difference. And I see it in my oh, students. Yeah. I see it all the time. I oh, say, yeah. hey, wh-, you know, they'll say, I don't want to apply for that job because you know, that's for fancy kids. I'm like, no, it's for you kids. Like, it's for you. Like, stick your neck out there. Like, get, but it what's going to happen? But it also applies to psychological states. Like, yeah. if you yeah. suffer yes. from anxiety yes. and you're 13 oh. or 14 years old, you think, this is me. I'm anxiety. I'll never be changed. I'll never, I'll never be able to overcome it. Oh, but so if good. you have a growth mindset, if you know that it's possible, you can rewire your brain, you can yes. change it, you yeah. can overcome it. Yeah. That's a game changer right there. Absolutely. So it applies to a lot of things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, it's brilliant. That's the amazing thing. It applies to everything. You know, and that's the that's the amazing thing about it. Um and, now what's the third? Yeah. Well, it's funny. The third we've actually spent most of our time talking about is challenge and threat. Oh. So that's what we so it's it's huh. locus of control or self self efficacy, uh, growth mindset and and challenge versus threat. So those are the three pillars of the mindset in a box. That's great. Think stuff. about it. You master those three. Like yeah. you've got a pretty good arsenal. You got some yeah, skills. Absolutely. And a couple with the mindfulness and the sitting and and the deep practice to just take time, whatever people want to do to fill in for having a calm mind. I've found it personally to be so great. Just take time. Take some time. Well, it's take, take 
take whatever time you need to get your mind working. Is it an, an ecosystem? Oh yeah, of qualities right there. Yes. One reinforces the other. Yes. So if you if you practice mindfulness and meditation, you're going to get much better at the locus of control. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a more positive attitude. So there goes your growth mindset. You have a growth mindset that's going to affect you know your locus of control. Yeah, and your challenge and threat, right? And challenge and threat. Yep. Of course, that's that's huge. So they all kind of work together. Yeah. That just to know that it exists is helpful. There's so much out there too that there's so much good science now we don't have to just rely on anecdote um and and anecdotes are are beautiful but the science can really fill into these things that can even just say go beyond um so optimism right we could spend another how many more hours do you want to spend here but um um it's a whole other thing but you can practice optimism by writing down right now you write down what would your best possible self do tomorrow would it wake up on time? And then you make a map of that. I don't get this idea, the best yeah. possible self. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I don't, I don't get it. No? No. What does that mean, the best possible self? I mean, I think it just, it goes down to our choices that we make in a moment. I think a false idea, a false idea I love of perfection. This. You know what I mean? There's a false idea that- Well, I think it's it, best possible self, right? Yeah. But there's, what's, dig, where's dig, the limit? Deep, dig deep in this. Dig deep where's in this. I want to know, I want to hear the- I, I, cause I kind of feel it. I, one thing I want people to say or, or, or walk away from that. I, I, I also wish we had a better term for it, you know, but what I, there's qualifiers. The reason I, that there's qualifiers for that term of best possible self that are there to just say like, look, if you're sick or poor or rich or healthy or whatever, you have at any given moment, the chance to do your best with whatever you have right? That you can make choices. And the best possible self, I mean, what optimism really is, is breaking things down into your orientation to make a better future. It's the belief that the future holds good things if you take some efforts now. Well, okay. That's all fine and good. Yeah. But the idea of your best possible self, that's singular. Now, if you said your best possible selves, I'd say, okay, because how do you judge what is the best? Po it's like saying you have the best possible face, or I want to write the best possible song. Well, maybe it's say the, best these, possible these choices. Best possible choices. You want to make the best choices. Why do they have to be you? You want to make the best choices that you can <laughs> under the consideration, but you want to do the best you can. You, you want to do better than not good. But I mean, you know, <laughs> I think these ideas, they're, they're false. Well, I mean, I think it's part of the image, right? I mean, I think it's part of the image making of ourself that we have an image of self that we want to project into a variety of scenarios and hope that it resolves in favor of what we would hope to be our, you know, an, an ideal outcome, so to speak, or an ideal behavior. A good given outcome. A, thing, a good outcome. So yes. you want to say that my best possible self would stay calm in traffic right? You want to say that, that that could be something that you make an image of, that you go and you learn sorry, to inhabit I that. I still have this uh, resistance, this concept of there being a best possible self that you could judge all the other things against. It doesn't exist. What do you think? So, okay, then, then let's unpack. I like this. So, um, okay. So tomorrow um, you have a choice to hit the snooze alarm 20 times or get up and go. I can make better choices. Yes. Okay. So then, then what would be what would you say is the way you? How do you decide to do that? Do you just say I will just make good choices tomorrow? I'm hoping that I can get up when the alarm goes off. You know? <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, I think that the the point is that there's a deeper motivation underneath it that that should be addressed, right? That you could force yourself to get out of bed for the wrong. You could get out of bed in anger. Um, that's also kind of the version of your best self that that you should take with you. That you can have a sense of yourself, a sense of state, of image of who you are across um, the day that that helps fulfill some some goal that is not just the decision itself, but also the motivation underneath it and the the deeper connection to who who we are um, on a moment to moment basis. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No. Well, well, I mean, I agree. I, I mean, I think that I, what I don't want it to do, here's what I, here's why I think we agree. Here's where we agree. I, it should never be a judgment against one's own self. It should right. never be the judgment of I'm not my best self or I'm go. not a good self. Right. It should never come from that state of wherever I am now is a bad self. And that I actually, that I really agree with you with that. Mm. If you have a best self, then you have a worse self. Right. And right. that dichotomy, I think could be very dangerous. So there I, I think we totally agree. Right. And so it, there must be, you're right. You're absolutely right. I think we need a new way of saying this because yeah, because you don't want to have that same statement of that's a good self, good job self. And that's right. a bad self. What the hell are you doing? What the crap? Right? right. And that, that kind of narrative, internal negative self-talk will, will hurt us. And so I think you're right. I think we need a better, a model of, and an, an ideal was, yeah. choice tree or something. Exactly. I don't know. That's not a best self or a worst self. Right. I think that's where we agree with it. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I agree Good point. With Good the push. The Good motivation. Push. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> we have what three, four more hours. <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting tired? <laughs> Impossible. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Um, I'm good. Let's go. How? Where do you want to go? Um. Oh, rejection. Last point. No. <laughs> I feel you just We're rejected not going me. there. You just re- <laughs> You got we me. We went meta. We went meta. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about rejection. Let's talk about Story rejection. Story of my life. Yeah. So how do you handle a rejection? How would you recommend uh, somebody handle rejection? Um it's it's a nice bridge from our discussion of optimism that um that really whatever it is that we're doing to say that something out here will make us feel good in here or that something out here will make us feel stuck in here, that the more we practice sort of getting out of that loop, the better we can handle with rejection. And rejection, I, I really hate the current narrative around rejection as this fail forward fast and just fail and get up and all these things because we learn the most from the mistakes we make when we're trying not to make mistakes. You know, rejection hurts the first time I try to get into graduate school. Um, absolutely hurt, hurt like crazy. I applied to a bunch of schools, didn't get in anywhere. Um, I've had all kinds of papers. They probably saw you a scene in Back to the Future 3 they and decided, they, we don't want this Well, guy. I didn't even understand his motivation. You know, what was it? You know, they they didn't like my, uh, my, my enunciation or something. But, um, you know, for a host of reasons, I didn't get in. And, you know, let's face it, right? If I'd gotten in, I would have gotten, um, you know, good things would have happened, right? This is the one thing too, is that you don't want to negotiate or bargain your way for and aft against something that happened. Because again, bargaining is sort of giving control of our internal state to an external thing. You say, oh, well, I didn't get into graduate school, but hey, I managed to get in with Antonio Damasio. And like, oh yeah, thank, thank God that turned out amazingly. But those other schools I was applying to, also really good and could have been great, probably would have been great 
probably would have been great to go to these other schools. Um, and it would have been great to go to, I had an interview at a, at a really great school with a wonderful guy and I got completely skewered. <laughs> I'm leaving out details here for, for some, some reasons of, uh, of privacy, <laughs> but I got, went to this interview unprepared. I thought, Oh, I'll just walk in and charm. I'm cool. I'm a cool guy. And he, the guy was like, what, what are you doing here? And I just got completely skewered. He said, he, anyway, we won't get into it, but, but that, that guy does great research and we managed, we kept in touch. He actually turned out to help me quite a bit the following year, helped me sort through things. Cause I, I thought, well, here's somebody who will call me on my shit. So it was good, but rejection can hurt. It's, it's just what you do afterward, right? right. It's, it's, you don't want to leave it to bargaining to say, well, this great thing wouldn't have happened, but something else great would have happened. So fine. Or maybe the thing you thought was great turned out to be crappy or, you know, whatever, that's that's not the point of learning from rejection. The point to me, my favorite lessons from rejection are learning about how I handle things, how I handle bad news and learning to treat that as grist for the mill to say, oh, that's what that feels like. And learning to use rejection to soften my perspective and to connect with other people better, to learn it, to use it as a chance for resilience and for a new and updated self-narrative that better connects me to other people. This is the ideal uh, plan, maybe not my best possible self, mm -hmm. but I would say that that's to me when I've really thought deeply and really come around on a painful rejection, when I really learned to just say, wow, that was great. I really stormed through that and I kept going. I really kept going. I really broke down what I needed to do to do better or to change tactics. That to me is when I've learned the most from rejection, not when I say, well, it worked out great in the end. And if that had happened, I wouldn't know because you don't know. You don't know what happened, right? Mm -hmm. So, and even if something bad does happen or when something bad does happen, you still don't want to bargain. Well, at least you're not, you know, like Karen or something. And, you know, because you don't know, at least you're not dead. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'd be better to be dead. You still don't know, right? So, so this goes back to the locus of control. I believe, yes, absolutely. And absolutely. the threat and challenge because yeah. you're spinning an event or circumstance in your life into a positive, in a positive way. You're interpreting it positive, but you're also keeping it as something that's internally controlled. I believe. Not yeah. dependent on the outside. Yeah, this is the skill. And that's the skill that I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to advocate for is to treat this as a skill, right? To treat it as a chance to to um, practice uh, working with, with you know, the the crap that life can provide in a, in a way that is accurate. You know, I mean, that that to me, that's, that's the fun part of it. And it's the hard and painful part. But really, I mean, the good news is we're judged by our behavior. We're not judged by our thoughts per se. We're judged by how we thank God, right? Like, yeah. We're judged by how we treat people. We're judged yeah. by how you make people feel. And you can always find a way to lift someone's day. You can always find a way to be nice to somebody, um, even if they do or don't deserve it. That's not really up to us, you know? And so that, that to me is where the, the fun begins for understanding rejection and dealing with it. And also the other thing too is like, you know, that old cliche about you miss all the shots you don't take. Um, you know, I think you're assuming, I think we're assuming some effort, some level of of joy de vivre to get out and try for things, right? So we're kind of assuming that there's some some desire to put yourself out there. And that's really the only way these high performing people that we talk to, they get they get shot down. And then even when they're great, they still get yelled at. Look at Andrew Luck, the, the great NFL quarterback. He's had a fantastic career, made the choice for himself to, to leave his career and start something new. People are booing him. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, that's just form of a rejection right there, yeah. right? I mean, he's playing for the fans and then they're booing him and throwing his jersey down. And by the way, a 29-year-old changing his career is not a national emergency, people. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Just come on, it's not a big deal. But he's 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 a human. He gets to do what he wants to do. And so in, in a sense, he's going through that rejection of people's love for him. If he were basing his entire worth on that validation from the fans, this could be an extremely damaging and toxic time for him. I don't. I get the impression. I don't know him or anything, but I get the impression that he's thought that out, and I think he's he's gonna deal. He's gonna deal with it. But that to me is the the lessons from rejection. I just think it's a sign you're going out. If you're not getting rejected regularly, I think about it as a scientist. If I'm not submitting papers that are getting rejected, if I'm not submitting grants that are getting rejected, if I'm not having things turned down, it probably means my throughput is just not high enough. It probably means I'm only playing it safe. I need that attitude because I'm constantly being rejected. I mean, it's just one after the other rejection. Yeah. Oh, this. So, yeah, it's it's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, uh, I'm still going to call you Doctor Fox just to annoy you. It's going to make you nervous. <laughs> so which annoying. You like. So annoying. It's good, but you like that. So, <laughs> I can't control your behavior, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> but I can. I can control mine. No, thank you so much. I love this stuff about the threat and the challenge that and the growth mindset. And the locusts, uh, the self-efficacy, yeah, um, and a lot of the other points you make, and uh, it's a pleasure knowing you, and knowing that I can pop into your office and annoy you more, <laughs> and um, I'm really happy and grateful, by the way, because I want to, I want to practice gratitude because I want more of those opiates in my system. Oh, I yeah. need it, so I, was, I really want to express as much gratitude as I can <laughs> that you came in and um, enlivened us today with some wonderful scientific-based information, the best possible information we could ever have gotten. And is there is there anything that you want to <clears throat> promote? Uh, yeah, I would, would, like I would love for, so first of all, I'll let you have the, the closing word, but um, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I've really cherished our relationship and getting to know you and learn and listen and you have such a wonderful perspective to share. I hope, I really do hope people jump on your book, particularly musicians. I mean, it's a really unique book because it is tied. It's very musical that 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 it's very much tied to the process of learning music. So I hope people jump on your book. So I'm going to promote your book for you okay. in my promotional time. Um, but also please follow us at USC PSI. That's the USC Performance Science Institute on uh, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Follow me, Glenn R. Fox. Uh, on Twitter, and you can always um, shoot me an email or a message. And wait, and, wait, hold it. Spell Glenn R. Fox. Oh, G L E N N R F O X. And uh, what was the Twitter? Or that's the, that's a, that's my Twitter handle. That, and what was before that? Uh, USC PSI. USC PSI. And that's what? No spaces. No, that's, that's the USC media? Performance Science Institute on um, on Twitter and Instagram. We don't really do much on Facebook right now. Okay. We also have our own podcast that people can listen to. We call it Glenn Interviews, Interesting Not Yet Famous People. So we interview Navy SEALs. We interview people who work for pro sports organizations. We interview uh, musicians and performers. Right. And we just get their perspective and how they how they make their mind uh, rise to challenges. Right. Where do they find the Go podcast? Go to our website. Oh, our podcast is on yeah. iTunes, the USC Performance Science Podcast. Okay. You can tell I'm such a self-promoter because you're having to like pull these things out of me. <laughs> yeah. You don't remember half the things you're doing. I don't. Yeah. You know, that's part of the problem. But uh, I'm having fun not doing them. And then 
what were you saying? There's some events that you were talking about? Oh, we have events. Go check us out on YouTube. Um, go to the our YouTube channel where we have videos from our interviews with Kobe Bryant, Ariana Huffington, Alex Honnold. Oh, no All kidding. kinds of uh, fantastic interviews done by my my um, partner and supervisor, David Belasco, who's interviewed every entrepreneur on the planet. The guy is, has seen everybody and met everybody. So we have a lot of great content if you want to know about the world of mindset in business. And um, come check us out if you want to uh, train your mind for high performance. Okay, terrific. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, thanks again to Dr. Glenn Fox. I hope you guys found this information as captivating as I find it. A lot of this stuff is very useful. As a matter of fact, lately, because I do public speaking and I'm naturally very shy, thinking about the so-called threat uh, as more of a challenge and that you can have fun with it has certainly helped me uh, a lot, among some of the other things that uh, Glenn talks about. And now I want to thank the people that worked on this podcast, Lonnie Ronaldo, Chase Crocher, and the Hannah Bowers. You can follow or subscribe to us at Wolf in Tune on Instagram, and we also even have a Facebook page uptold. So until next time, we hope you stay in a higher octave, and let's stay in tune.